Welcome back to Game of Thrones 2 Electric Bookaloo. I'm your host, Anthony. This week, we are covering Danny's seventh POV chapter with medievalist Danielle Alisi. Danielle is in the Department of History and Political Science at Millican University. Danielle is absolutely the perfect person to help me cover this chapter. Among the classes she teaches at Millican are A Global History of Slavery and Resistance, Global History of Magic and Witchcraft, and The Medieval World. So you could say that this chapter could be used as content for any one of those three classes. Just a reminder that I am now publishing my show content with comic Steve Osborne in our weekend sessions of Electric Bookaloo. If you can't wait to hear from Steve, check us out over at my other podcast, Cocoons of Horror, where Steve and I laugh a lot about Bram Stoker's Dracula. Okay, without further ado, here is Dr. Danielle Alisi. And can you tell me, um, is it Alessi or Alisi, or how do I... It's Alisi. It rhymes with Khaleesi. <laughs> that... that... Perfect. Yeah, that was something that uh, that people commented on a lot in college when the show was on. Uh huh. Uh, yeah. Very good. Very good. <laughs> doesn't it, it doesn't help that I also used to go by Danny a lot more often. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, that one didn't age well, did it? <laughs> no, it really, it really didn't. It didn't. Um, especially, I, I try to use it on my students. I say, it's Dr. Lisi, it rhymes with Khaleesi, and they don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> of course not. Of course. Really sad. <laughs> of course not. They don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. uh, because they were watching Frozen yeah. when Game of Thrones <laughs> came out. Exactly. Mm. They have, it just goes right over their heads. The other professors get it. Sure. Not not the kids. <laughs> but yeah, what, if people get the reference, then they never forget how to say my name. So that does uh-huh. help me. <laughs> That's great. Okay. Um, this is a brutal chapter. Yeah. It may be the most brutal chapter. I, I, I remembered, I almost, when I was thinking about this, I, I was thinking, I really need a medievalist on to talk about this with me because I'm mm-hmm. sure that there's a, a lot of hints and historical, you know, touch points that might help. Um, and I was sort of thinking about it very matter of factly. Mm. And then when I reread this last night, I was thinking, Oh my gosh, this is just a nightmare of a chapter. Yeah. I definitely, when I was rereading it to get ready, I was thinking, ooh, that, um, it's going to be hard to talk about. Yeah, really. And if you were going to use this particular chapter in a classroom, you might issue a trigger warning. Would that be safe to say? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I usually do a kind of general content warning at the beginning of my classes, uh, mm-hmm. like in the beginning of the semester to say, you know, these are the thing, these are the types of things that are going to come up often right. because of, of the nature of his, the type of history I teach. So uh, we usually have a, a, a conversation about that pretty early on. But if something is particularly heavy yeah i'll stop again and and you know not spend too much time on it because that can get um that 
that can be difficult for students in in, mm. in itself and yeah. then create kind of anxiety going in but just to acknowledge that like hey this is this is tough stuff huh like yeah, um you right. know just and then afterwards just say like you know take care of yourselves and uh i'm here to talk if you if you want to and just kind of just acknowledging that it's it's not easy to talk about but um that when you do history when you do history right it's going to come up quite often actually right sure so I should probably just let people know, like, we're going to talk about rape. We're going to have to talk about rape. And we're going to have to talk about human trafficking because it's in this chapter. And yeah. that is our our warning to listeners. Not that, you know, I, I my guess is that people listening to this know what the Game of Thrones world is like. And so they're not right. going to be too surprised by it. But I just thought I would mention that that this particular chapter is is uh especially brutal right um i'm gonna go ahead and read my synopsis of this chapter and then we can talk about it okay danny tours the last throes of battle that took place in a lazarine field she sees wounded men beheaded and hears screaming horses. But the battle has been won. A rival cow named Ogo has been, could be Ago, I guess, has been raiding a village when Drogo overtook him, wiped out his army, and claimed almost 10,000 slaves. Now the spoils of the so-called sheepmen belong to Danny's husband. But Danny, as much as she tries, cannot abide rape. She ignores the protests of Jorah and almost everyone. She begins to claim women and girls as her own slaves in an effort to protect them. One of these women, it turns out, is a healer. Her name is Miri Mazdur. She claims to have studied healing magic with experts from all over the world. Though she draws suspicion of Hago and Kotho, Drogo seems to trust her to treat his wounds. Miri and company enter her temple, and she mends Drogo's deep cut and his arrow wound. Drogo feels strong enough to ride and commands them to leave the Lazar behind. Danielle, Elise, what do you want to talk about? Should we cover a character, a plot point, a theme, or would you like to just climb the ladder of chaos? Um, I, I you know, there's a lot of different things to talk about here. A lot um, of chaos in this chapter. A lot of chaos, so I, I, I feel like that's the move. Okay, I'll let you go first. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's, it's just really choosing choosing which one. Mm -hmm. um, I think what I want to start with is um, something that then uh, comes up so much with Danny's character throughout the series, and, and I wonder if uh, if you would agree that it might be birthed here, which is kind of her white saviorism. Mm. Right. I think you're right. I think this is the first indication of, of her trying to... She is trying to play Messiah a little bit, right? Yeah. And and it's it's interesting because you, you, you get it and you sympathize and you see that it's coming from... Her. In this chapter, it comes from her place of trauma. Um, you know, she's reflecting on and she says that she knows what it's like to be afraid. And she she also, even if she doesn't acknowledge it in the text, we know she knows what it's like to be raped. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that, that that's really coming forth, I think, when she has this gut reaction that is is she's even acknowledging is not in her best interests, right, of her ultimate right. goals. Yeah, she really does um, try to, yeah. you know, kind of steal her heart against these things, but she can't. 
she can't and and so she goes forth um you know wholeheartedly and that's kind of that's danny's thing all or nothing right mm-hmm. she's, she's not just going to save one she's going to save them all mm-hmm. and gonna create this big big thing um and it i mean it's 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 so interesting that that's 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 what she's doing she's she's saving the women from rape and not looking at the whole the whole carnage the whole situation mm-hmm. that's happening she's very specifically i think um honed in on on the the issue that touches her most deeply even if she doesn't vocalize that as much yeah i kind of feel like i mean there's a couple ways to to look at this i think that um in the book that that i co-wrote the chapter that we did on this sort of calls her calls that into question like of course how does she save these women while she enslaves them Exactly. Which is super complicated. But in rereading this chapter, I'm almost thinking, what power does she really have? Right. You know, she's not going to stop them from raiding the village. The village has been raided. She's not going to stop, you know, centuries of Dothraki, you know, warfare ritual. What yeah. I don't know what else she can do besides hold her tongue uh, to help anything, and and I mean we could certainly we we a case can be made that she doesn't help anything at all, right? Right. Um. Yeah. So it's so complex. It's so complex. It is. It is. It's what ma- I mean. It's so. It's so interesting and it's so difficult because it's complex because you you can't really come down on either side definitively. Everything has a like, well, but yeah, she saves them, but she enslaves right. them. Um, but what other choice that she had? Do nothing. And and she's she's kind of operating with her own within her own context of uh, being a woman and a foreigner in this culture um, has a little bit of privilege as the Khaleesi and having the kind of mm-hmm. the love and the devotion of the cow. But um, she's she's so she's operating within the the space that she has. Um, but I think it's just it's really interesting to see what the results of that are and how then she starts to mimic these patterns on really large scales right. from book to book. Yes. Right. No, I th- I like that I like that you're noticing here that we're seeing some seeds planted for sure because this will be her move again and again, right? She she'll walk into a culture that's not her own notice an injustice and try to solve it. Right. So, and I think that that's part of why we love Danny. (laughs) At least, at least we love her in the, in, in the early parts of her story. Right. Yeah. But the way that she ends up doing it is almost always fraught with complication. Yeah. And I, and I even wonder too, um, is it not what she does? I mean, cause like we said that what choice does she realistically have do nothing? I mean, do we agree with that? I don't, I don't think so, but it, is it, is it more that th- how she feels she should be treated because of it? Hmm. Because there's this, there's this line that I wrote down at towards the end where it says, Danny felt she could trust this old plain faced woman with her flat nose. She had saved her from the hard hands of her rapers after all. Right. 
and and that's that's going to come back you know later when in more um discussions between danny and, and mary muster about you know i saved you will save me from what right mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. that and i wonder if really that's the uh the thing to highlight here is not so much what she she does well though it has its complications as you said it's she's saving them through enslavement and that needs to be interrogated but mm-hmm. um that she thinks that she should be that that's an alliance or <laughs> you know that that's that's a that, that she's owed something right i think okay so yeah i think this comes back to like the the old ethical question like is it really altruistic to help someone if you're doing it because it makes you feel good, right? Mm. I think it does make Danny feel good. It makes her feel powerful. It makes her feel um, like she's, you know, making this horrible scene just a, a little bit better by saving these women from being raped. And yeah. honestly, I think in the moment, she's a teenager how can I really fault her for using whatever power that she has in her hands right then? Wise or not, how can I fault her for trying to bring a little bit more humanity to this horrible situation? Um, she doesn't know what's going to happen next. All she knows is that she might be able to save a few of these women from being raped. Right? I think that that's what she's trying to do. Yeah. So you're right. Early stages of Danny's silver savior complex, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, and and it's it is inherently complicated, right? We like Danny. We like what she's doing. We don't want the these women to be assaulted in this way. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a she's kind of operating. She is both assimilating to this culture and also outside of it, and in some really. Um, interesting complicated ways but yeah i mean we we can't also just look away from that this is a this is a white woman commenting on the the brown people she's saving and that's that's something that that needs to be acknowledged too that's yeah that's right and i think that another way to look at this is to say um because we're kind of tricked into rooting for danny (laughs) right yeah i think everything every indication in this book so far, is that uh, that we are supposed to be on Danny's side. We want good things to happen to Danny, right? And yet, because of that, we're almost rooting for Danny and Cal Drogo to continue their love affair. Yeah. Um, I think it's pretty clear that Cal Drogo is a monster. Yeah. I yeah. I mean not not through Danny's eyes, but that's part of the trick here is that we are rooting for Danny, and so sort of by proxy we're rooting for Cal Drogo, and yet he's <laughs> he's sitting there, cross legged with a pile of heads, taller than he's <laughs> than he is next to him. I mean it's pretty it's pretty grotesque. This yeah. guy is. He's a warlord in every uh, every sense of that term, for sure. And a human trafficker, and, you know, who knows how many women that Drogo's raped uh, this day. We, we don't know that. But you right. kind of get the sense that this is how the Dothraki function. This is how they... This is this is what they do after they take a village. They enslave people, they sell their slaves, they rape women... They kill young boys. Uh, they sell children into 
uh, you know, to into sex sex trade. Um, yeah, this is all very gross, gross, gross stuff. And I think as a reader, I'm supposed to be thinking ah, maybe I'm maybe I have misjudged. Maybe my feelings have been misplaced about Drogo. Yeah, you know, it's it's. they're they're definitely you know they're that's a love story and we are as you say tricked into rooting for them especially in the show um that's that's uh definitely there um but if you look at it from uh, you know a medievalist perspective there's a real uh east versus west orientalist uh conversation happening here that these are you know they've been compared to the mongols right. or there's kind of these uh nondescript eastern tribe in the text right like it's it's not always clear but it, it's there's a strong mongol comparison i think to be made um in the the conquest and the the pillaging and the rape after the conquest yeah um and and then you know the the even just the rampant slavery in the east in the book compares so much to the the way the west and the medieval west viewed the east as it, right. harems and sex slavery and it's exotic it is yeah. it, it's rampant with slavery and and so the texts that come out of that the stories that come out of that do have this um negative but also sometimes uh sexualizing uh, element to it like there's fantasy in there right an erotic fantasy to that and i i almost wonder if that's somewhat playing out in this story that um it's like she's she has this uh stockholm syndrome experience mm-hmm. right but is it in in another way of looking at it like going the quote unquote going native right she starts to assimilate into mm-hmm. this these people that she's been in the beginning forced into right she's yeah. married off it it just tracks uh distressingly well into some of these old medievalist uh and early modern stories of um you know people being sold into ottoman harems yeah and, and things like that tell me as a medievalist tell me if you would agree with this statement so the dothraki are not so much based on the actual mongols but based on the Western mythology of the Mongols. Yes. Yeah, I agree with that. Right? So there's almost no real comparison to be made other than perhaps the, the affinity for, um, I mean, just being pastoralist yeah. and, and having a closeness to the horse, horses. But yeah, it's, it is a, definitely a bastardized version of that. Right. That, and that I, think, I think it's an important distinction because... I think that some folks might be tempted to say, "Well, this is what this is what happened in history." Martin is just mirroring with how brutal the world was back then, and I, I think it's important to say that, well, yes, the West did view the East as you know, sort of a land of savages, right? Right. Um, that's that is through Western eyes. And of course, it works for the story because we're being introduced to the East through Danny's eyes, and she represents the West, I suppose. Um, but it's an important distinction to make to think okay, no, Drogo is not based on Genghis Khan, Drogo is based on the rumors. And the and the sort of the the slander and the the worst fears about Genghis Khan. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and I think it's it's worth noting too that the it's it's created in this this dichotomy as if the West isn't perpetuating the same war crimes and their conflicts. Sure. Yeah. Right. Like that's uh, that's Danny's point of view for sure. Right. That, uh, that because she doesn't know Westeros, she doesn't know that you know burning down villages and raping people occurs in conflicts there too. Isn't that always the case when we want to create a monster out of uh, another culture? We imagine our worst selves in them, right? Yeah, it's a, it's it's. So yeah, we know what war is like, right? The Western folks know what you know what war is like and what happens in our wars. And then, of course, if we want to create monsters out of other folk, we just imagine that they're like us, but even worse. Um, yeah. And I think that that's probably the the root of what's going on in this chapter. Yeah, and and yeah, by far, uh, Mongol enslavement and even like post-conquest enslavement, uh, it, it definitely did not function the way it's being played out in in Game of Thrones. Uh, typically, it'd be conscription into the Mongol army. Interesting. Uh, okay. And yeah, I definitely. I, I again, I think the, the the one of the most important distinctions to be made is it was certainly not. Um, so much more practiced in the east than the west right mm. that there's this is kind of something that it was existing um it, throughout the world in different forms mm. at all times and that there is really no place uh that could be fully absolved of it right no and and you're i mean that point is well taken so thank you for that for sure and i think it's helpful to remember that in martin's words what he'll do is he'll take a historical detail like this and he'll like paint it in like neon and he'll turn it up to 11. So he's always using sort of these exaggerations to tell his story. I mean, it's a fantasy, right? right. This is right. No one's asking for, I think, a historical accuracy here. What What is so interesting about it is that it has these threads that we could follow and say, what, you know, what does this tell us about the way we have viewed history? Yeah. Um, Right uh, or or even in contemporary yeah. times, right? What is this? What is this story and its complexities and our kind of messy, unsure feelings tell us about how we view white saviorism, colonialism? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, that I think is the real power of of what he's doing here, because like you said, by painting it in neon, um, it, it it makes us look at it. We have to look at it. We can't look away. It's right there on the page. Mm-hmm. Right. The other thing. And this maybe relates to this conversation, but I noted it. It's a, it's an interesting word that Hago uses for Miri Mazdur. He calls her a Maggi. Mm. And so in my work on the ancient Middle East, it's interesting that this is actually a word that has an analog in Greek, which goes back to Persian, and it's basically the idea of magic. It's a person yeah. who is all, and it's always, it's never sort of um, this term uh, magos or um, from the word goes. This is a term that's almost exclusively used in a derogatory way. So, like modern times, we have the idea of like a magician. 
mm-hmm. um, which it doesn't necessarily, it's not like an insult or whatever. Right. But in the ancient world, the only people that you would accuse of being a magician or, or a practitioner of magic is usually a foreigner with an exotic or a religion to be feared or a system of worship to be feared or rituals to be feared. It, so there's sort of an, a, an implicit xenophobia that's baked into that idea. Yeah. And so we we kind of see that mentality on the lips of Hago here. She, you know, Miri Mazdur says that she's a god's wife. Mm-hmm. You know, she heals in this temple. Those are her terms. Now, from but from the Dothraki perspective, she's a witch. Right. Right? And so that clearly the word Maggie is basically a, a derogatory term that says you know, this is a boogie person. <laughs> this is yeah. This is this is someone to be feared. This person is a person who consorts with demons, and uh, you know, you, you can sort of work at all of the usual tropes in the, in that uh, the blood magic. Yeah, the yeah. blood magic, all of that business. So I thought that was an interesting detail because I think a lot of Dothraki is just uh, gibberish, um, which you know, David Peterson has had to create a system of (laughs) linguistics around, you know, but this was back before there was any sort of linguistic paradigm to Dothraki. This is just Martin inventing words. But in this case, he absolutely does borrow this term. Yeah, I think that's absolutely clear. (laughs) Um, And I'm so glad you brought it up because it was one of the things I did want to get to, which is the the, the magic and witchcraft element. Mm -hmm. Um, that is is so interesting to me um yeah i think that the 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 term is doing exactly what you what what you're what you're speaking about here it is not just um indicating magic right they don't call her a witch it's very specifically indicating magic that is foreign magic that is other yeah demon magic (laughs) and the fact that it is related to the religion Uh uh i think speaks so true to what we just see happening uh time and time again historically throughout the world throughout the history of witchcraft Uh um that you know i i I teach a witchcraft class uh here at the university and last semester we we you know as a class kind of kept finding this theme and the students were realizing and it was so interesting to see them come up with this idea that oh actually magic is just religion that other people have not recognized as religion yeah Um, exactly it's xenophobic it's a xenophobic view of someone else's uh ritual right yeah so that that was really interesting um or to, it's just to totally her. built on, you know, myth, myth right? It's totally, right. it's totally built on, uh, you know, some kind of cautionary tale that someone's invented. Yeah, but the, the, we certainly see with this character, she is, um, you know, God's wife, priestess of some form, but also a healer, and how those two things are. Um, put together that's really true you know historically mm-hmm. uh, the way she's described as being older um not getting the same physical attractive features ascribed to other characters mm-hmm. um it, i mean that's a so textbook witch character yeah. right um and in in the agency that she exerts she speaks out she's the only one to speak 
out. She knows all these languages. I mean, there's just something in in the way that her character is presented that is just signaling to all of us, uh, you know, mentally, which, which, right? Yeah. Um, and it's, there's a foreboding in that, I think, because of what what's to come. But because it's played against this orientalist perspective right othering uh experience we also there there's some sympathy there too especially in her speech like we feel weird about it yeah. right? her, her position and, it, and and i wanted to ask you on this because i'm i'm in thinking about this role this this witch character right do we see in the series uh and of course is like where we every comp every element of the series has complications to it but do we do we feel like we see in the series a lot of instances where the female characters doing magic are coded negatively versus I, yeah that's the men. a good question I mean, that's the a witch really good question. figure is definitely not our most celebrated figure in this this text. There's something really kind of dark and complicated mm-hmm. about them, the Melisandre and, uh, and the other. Yeah. Okay. You know what? I think I have a few ideas about this. Let me before I before I go that direction. Let me read this one passage because I think it it kind of illustrates what what you were talking about here. Where did you learn your magic? You know, where did you learn your healing, Miri Mazdur? This is Danny speaking. She says, My mother was a god's wife before me and taught me all of the songs and spells most pleasing to the great shepherd and how to make the sacred smokes and the ointments from leaf and root and berry. When I was younger and more fair, interesting that she adds that note, mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. I went in caravan to Ashai by the shadow. To learn from their mages. Ships from many lands come to Ashai. I lingered so long to study the healing ways of distant people. A moon singer from Yogos Nai gifted me with birthing songs. A woman of your own writing people taught me the magics of grass and corn and horse. And a maester from the sunset lands opened a body for me and showed me all the secrets that hide beneath the skin. And Jorah Mormont spoke up. A maester. Marwin, he named himself, the woman replied, in the common tongue. From the sea, beyond the sea, the seven lands, he said, the sunset lands, where men are iron and dragons rule. He taught me this speech. Okay, so interesting (laughs) here. A couple things here. You're probably right that there are some parallels in how foreign women are depicted in this show or in the, in the books in the show. The only other time that the term sunset lands is used is as far as I can tell is on the lips of Melisandre, right? So we have a parallel here. These are two women who practice some kind of, you know, perceived magic. They're foreigners, but they have nothing else in common. They're, they don't, you know, they don't, come from the same place they don't practice the same stuff um, but they're both using this terminology of westeros so it's almost like sort of garden variety witch language mm-hmm. and yet let me spin this around a little bit it could be that when she's working with you know working how she normally works she's just a healer but in order to do dirty to drogo is it possible that she's actually using Westerosi knowledge? Because she 
she's basically, you know, who is Marwin that we can tell? He's a maester that's sort of been ousted by the Citadel. He's from Westeros, although he's kind of traveling all over the place. And she learns how to, like, make someone a walking dead man from Marwin. I mean, that would be one way to read this. So the rea- so the witchcraft is actually coming from Westeros, if if I'm reading this correctly. Yeah, it's super interesting, right? Because it, it turns everything back on its head. Because for me, what I notice in that passage is that she receives her legitimacy in, especially Jorah's uh-huh. eyes, yeah, uh, right. <laughs> by being trained by a maester, right. so a man from his his religious. Experience. Yeah, she actually has a, a, a you know like a worthy degree, right? So yeah. of an institution that we recognize, and yeah, that gives her credibility in I think Jorah's eyes and Danny's eyes right they no longer view yeah. her as sort of a, a foreigner who just practices you know witchcraft she, she's actually studied we can trust right. that she's studied and, and western medicine arguably as you're saying it's the baster who's doing the dark yes. magic but because he's the man in the institution yes. that you know then then it's it's first it's not magic anymore it's science that's right uh, that's right and i think that that is just that's so fascinating and it's that is fascinating the science for sure she turns on them yeah right it's fascinating for sure and i think that in general what you're saying about how this is gender coded is probably true but i think that we're going to hear more about marwin mm. and we've absolutely seen kyburn do crazy stuff right yeah yeah and this is not in the books but in the show varus claims that the man who cut him is like this sorcerer from you know from another land Right. And he ends up like capturing the sorcerer and having him in a box or whatever. That's yeah, that's yeah. not in the books. So I think that I think we might be looking at more of an orientalist sin here rather than necessarily a gendered sin. What do you think? Yeah, I think that that makes that definitely makes sense. Like I said, I was just kind of wondering yeah. as we're rereading through. Uh-huh. Um, it's something I want to pay more attention to. But I I, I do think. I mean, yes, maybe he's called a sorcerer, but, you know, this term witch in the way that it's used against the women and we don't really see the women's magic ever being viewed as science. Uh Um, (laughs) That's true. That's totally true. And the women is I think that both things are happening. I yeah. think there's something to look for there. I think you're probably right. Yeah, the way that the uh, Omega is described um, from, you know, from Danny's point of view is that it's a woman who sort of consorts with demons and then the, 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 this woman will come and suck the life force out of a man. Yeah, I mean, that's... <laughs> <laughs> right. So that so that absolutely is gendered for sure. Um uh but it's interesting to me that it, and and the text doesn't necessarily say this. Maybe I'm blaming Marwin when I shouldn't be, but I do wonder if what Marwin does to Drogo is analogous to some of the stuff we see Kyburn doing. In, uh... I think that'd be so cool. I, I've never thought of that before. And I definitely, <laughs> now I'm going to be looking for that. Uh-huh. And and it brings me, so one of the questions I wanted to know, do, and I think about this, I've always thought about this from the very beginning. Do we think that Mir Muzder 
harmed or started the process of harming Drogo in that moment with the first healing? Did she try to heal him in that moment and mm. then seize her opportunity later? I'm, I'm just, I think that that's such a ambiguous moment. Yeah. It's interesting. I, the way that I have read her and, and I'd be, I'd be willing to be pushed on this, but the way that I've read her is that she knows what she's doing. It seems like she's got a plan from the start. She speaks up, right? She says, look, mm-hmm. I, I can help you, Silver Lady. And so from my perspective, it's always been like she knows her end game from, from this, ver- this starting point. Mm-hmm. Um, now, why do I think that? I, I don't know if I don't know if I have good evidence for that. I just feel like she's such a powerful character who seems to have it all together. She's probably under the surface. She's probably the person that I, in the end, like looking back, knowing what I know about the series, she's probably the person I ought to be rooting for in this chapter. Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Even though it feels weird because Danny's a teenager and I want, you know, want good things to happen to Danny and all that stuff. What she ends up doing, she's basically defending her people I don't know how much she knows about the stallion who mounts the world, but it can't sound good to her ears. Right. And if she can avert a future conquest, then maybe she, maybe she's justified in what she does. You know, when you think about the the language being used there, um, and especially with the nature of what this chapter is about. Um, what what do those words also mean? Conquest, mounting, mm-hmm. mounts the world. Yeah, yeah. I mean, rapes the world. That's what she's she's I think hearing in this. Right. I think in in quite literally and also metaphorically, what what these aggressors, these conquerors mean to her. Um, and I agree. I think that this is this is a this is her chapter and if we were to read it from her point of view and she was our main character this is that is absolutely what we're reading uh this is resistance um I, and i and think rebellion. That, yeah i think that i mean there's lots of ways we could fault martin but i think that in one in this way i think he deserves some credit here i think when when i think joko says um let me make sure i have this right i think when quotho says uh, he's not. What are you talking about? He's he's honoring her. We know that the mm-hmm. lamb, the lamb people lay with sheep, and so he's like he's doing her an honor. I think that we are supposed to read this text from a feminist perspective. We're supposed to see how monstrous a statement like that actually is. Yeah. From Danny's point of view, that absolutely can't be true. And so there's so the right the only right way to read this is from a feminist perspective as this chapter is constructed. That absolutely is inviting me through Danny's eyes to see rape for what it is. And so sort of expanding that to the wider world of conquest you know, stallion who mounts the world. Now, that's not how the Dothraki would see it. They wouldn't think of it as rapes the world. But that concept of rape is totally encoded yeah. in the title of Danny's Unborn Child, right? I 
I think so. I, and I think that, yeah, I, I mean, I agree. I think the text is doing that. I think Martin is doing that. He's created this situation in which we do root for Danny and Drogo and all, and we, you know, we, we like the Dothraki on some level, but we can't read this chapter and not see it for what it is and not read it in that way. And what stands out for, for me, you know, the most is in that that quote that I read earlier when she says she saved her from the hard hands of her rapers when she says after all I mean it's just in that one yeah. additional line <laughs> after all it it, right. it it hints to us that she's he's writing that in to hint to us that she's wrong to say that right it's just not going to bode yeah, after all it does something than just matter of factly saying she saved her so she can trust her like uh-huh. after all adds this kind of uh ignorant naivete right to it i think you're um, totally right i i totally I, missed I that but that. you're you're right that 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 the way that that's phrased immediately makes you question the validity of the statement absolutely i mean it's it's it is chekhov's gun right as soon as she says she can trust her we know she cannot trust her right? um yes absolutely oh my gosh that's a that's a great point i hadn't seen that yeah. And, and, you know, I think that it's, it's, this is also reading it again, knowing where Danny's going to go as a character. What Martin does so expertly is make us root for the villains. And in this case, mm-hmm. you know, Danny's not the villain yet. Uh, and she's a product of, of many things that's happened to her, but I do think we're seeing her on the way to something and how she turns, you know, and punishes Mary Muster at the end. You know, we're, this is a character who, who was was assaulted who was had her whole uh, community destroyed yeah. was treated cruelly the entire time um and who was uh, resisting her oppressors and then she's killed for it right, right? um and and yeah to, to mary monster's point how many women did she save from cal drogo and from the sun it's it, i think that is you know is on as difficult as it is to see through the lens of the characters we root for, that's what we're talking about here. Right. Um, yeah, I think that what I had forgotten that. about this chapter was that the Dothraki came upon this village as it was already being raided, right? So yeah. uh, Kal Ogo was sort of treated like a brother in a previous chapter because you don't do violence under the Mother of the Mountain. Is now out in the open field, and his people are pillaging this village. You can just imagine that you know all of these uh, the, the Lazarine folk have already undergone mm-hmm. uh, this horrible treatment once already. And then when Drogo comes along, he doesn't just start raiding the village. He has to conquer the previous Cal first. Yeah, uh, he doesn't just kill him. He kills his son and he brags about it, right? Also, so what's interesting about this chapter, too, and 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 really holistically, Danny and Jorah's experience with the Dothraki um, is that we are looking at you know Western people living with an Eastern pastoralist society, and they're the others. And sure. that comes out a lot. Yeah. And and they and so the comments about Jorah's uh, armor, right, and how that that played out, and the 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 jokes about their skin or their hair or, uh-huh. or their eyes, um, or their their customs. It 
stands out to me because there was Western European contact with the Mongols at, at a couple of different points. And, and in those accounts, the Mongols typically did laugh at the Western Europeans and their customs and, um, and make fun of them. And that, that did stand out to me because I was recently reading about that um, and yeah. teaching about that. And it's just that there is, we can flip the othering on its head too. And it's, it's an interesting perspective to see that these are societies that um, have their own customs and they're not always being viewed through a Western lens, but that Western people are being viewed through their lens. Interesting. Too. And that, that plays out here. Yeah. I was looking at a travel narrative maybe a year or so ago, so I might not remember this perfectly, but it was like a it was like a traveling priest who ha- spent a couple years with the Mongols. Yeah. Um and, you know, with the hope that eventually he might convert, but you know, he he wrote a lot about the Mongols' perspective of the West. Right. And one of the things he writes is that of of course the the West is uh, specifically with respect to Christianity is somewhat hypocritical because you know the Mongols know the West mostly mostly on the battlefield um, right. and through business dealings and whatnot. Um, of course, that looks very very different than uh, the West from a sort of a religious perspective. And so this this traveling priest was noting the inconsistencies from a Mongol perspective on the West. Uh, so I thought that was interesting. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Let For me sure. just note a couple differences here that I thought were interesting here. So when Danny says, uh, hey, 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 stop, stop raping her and I'm going to take her as my slave and I'm going to take all these women as my slaves, I noted that... Jorah says, you're so much like your brother. Mm-hmm. And that's not in the show. And she says, Viserys? Like, oh no, are you insulting me? <laughs> <laughs> and he says, no, Rhaegar. And I thought, oh, okay. Knowing what we know about the Rhaegar narrative in retrospect, it's interesting because we could take this in a couple ways. You know, is she like Rhaegar because she's She's overly compassionate, right? Because the rumor is that Rhaegar raped Lyanna. And so does that fit with the rumors we've heard of Rhaegar? Um, Or is she more like Rhaegar because, you know, she's got this fiery dragon sense of self because, you know, she kind of steals herself and she, you know, she says, I'm I'm the blood of the dragon. So it's, it's a little bit ambiguous there why Jorah notes that she's like her brother. And I think that we're meant to question, well, in what way is she like Rhaegar? And I think that there's another way, a subtextual way to read that, especially with the hindsight of of more of the series, is is she like Rhaegar in that her decision-making, her passion decision-making will veer her off course for ultimate victory. <laughs> it's it's ultimately unwise. She's acting at which, out of what she thinks is compassion, but ultimately she's she's doing something that's very unwise politically. Yeah, that will that will harm her in the end. Yeah. Sure. Um, <laughs> and and it's, just, it's just interesting to read that. But I think, yeah, I think we start to see in the, the book, especially in the show, they can't really do it because it would seem so 
it, the payoff is so far away that it would seem largely out of place, I think. Uh-huh. But to drop these seeds that the story about Rhaegar is not what we think. Interesting. Yeah. No, I think you're right. And I think that there's no way to there's no way to know that on first read, right? I, I think it's right. it's it's something that's a, it's a little Easter egg that rewards on reread for sure. Yeah. And and I do think that they that it starts to ramp up. You know, you get this perspective from Danny's side about. Rhaegar and her family and what that was like and it, it shows that you know people who are on different sides of the war are going to have different opinions on the the, the people they fought for mm. um, and so and then when we ultimately learn the truth that has just so much more power to it that mm-hmm. she's like Rhaegar and that's a that's a good thing he was a good guy yeah right the other thing I noted I just rewatched the the scene in the show and Danny plays very differently in in the show especially when she interacts with drogo in the book she kind of snaps uh she, she kind of says you know i think one of uh, drogo's blood riders says something like what are you talking about take them for the wives you know horses don't meet with you don't make a home with the sheep or something like that yeah she snaps and she says well the dragons eat both horses and sheep alike yeah and Drogo kind of admires this. He's like, yeah, see? Yeah, that, that's my son giving her fire, you know. Um, in the show, she really gets diminutive. She, like, she gets on her hands and knees and she says, oh, no, please, please help, you know, let this woman heal you. There's none of that fiery stuff um, in that particular scene. And it's really important because... Who is to blame for Miri Mazdur killing Drogo in the show? Well, it's Danny because Danny, Danny begs. She's on her hands and knees. She's begging, please let this woman heal you. In the book, none of that's there. In the book, what happens is she says, "Why would you want to heal my call?" And then she goes on this thing. You know, theologically, you know, we worship the the Great Shepherd, and we're all sheep. And so, of course, I would want to heal a fellow sheep. And um, Drogo just says, do it. So yeah. Danny never begs for it. Danny doesn't tell Miri to do it. It's Drogo. Drogo, it's almost like he's like, look, enough talk. Let's just let's just do this. And so Drogo is responsible for his own fate in that way. And it's interesting too when you when you look at the book version that way because later drogo says you know you don't ask a slave you you, you command them uh, yeah it's almost like he's not viewing he doesn't see that there could be agency yeah. on this person that, there, that she would well, have an clearly, agenda yes clearly he underestimates her right but danny immediately does why would you want to uh-huh. heal him she asks uh-huh. she re- she even subconsciously realizes like and she has to convince herself mentally, I can trust her because I saved her, right? right? Uh, she right. has to, she, her instinct isn't that it, this is um, automatically going to work out for her. So it's, mm-hmm. it is kind of interesting how it plays out differently um, in the book. It, in both scenarios, you know, she, she as you said, she plays so different. She's fierce and she's a little bit smarter and more suspicious in the book than she is in the show. In both cases, you know, we could read her relationship with Drogo as as genuine love. I think mm-hmm. they grow to love each other, mm-hmm. but also some Stockholm syndrome. And she, what choice does she have? And her life is miserable, miserable before they have 
a companionship. Right. And when they have this love together, when she earns his respect as a partner, she is more inherently powerful. Right? She, hmm. She's empowered by that. And so she, her power at this point is really dependent on him. And in either case, um, I think you see that playing out that especially in, in the show where she's begging him to be saved. Okay, sure, because she loves him, but she needs him too. She right. needs him for otherwise she's nothing. So it's just it's just kind of interesting to note that there's more going on, I think, under the surface than her just having fallen in love yeah. with her uh, oppressor, but that, that she that's a position for many pre-modern queens that through that intimacy, however it's gained and, and obtained is where a lot of that in, internal power lies. Yeah. And even so, even with Drogo, he admires her fire. And I think he does actually genu- genuinely admire it. Cause I think he's, fa- I think he's fallen in love with her. Yeah. Um, but what does he say to his blood risers? He says, listen to her. <laughs> That's my son talking. You're right. Yeah. So that, that gives her the, you know, she's, she, her power is through her husband, but her husband is able to justify that because she's carrying his son. Yeah, that that's what makes her strong and fierce. And we know uh-huh. that that's not it. And and yeah, I absolutely think that that's so uh, just just such an interesting moment uh-huh. that that's said and that's that's um, enforced uh, that for pre you know pre modern queen woman she's getting her power not through just through her relationship with her husband uh-huh. but she's carrying his child. And at that point, she has she's never had more power and she'll never have more power. Though we know it's going to change because of <laughs> what does happen, right? We're in a fantasy uh-huh. book, but uh-huh. that's that's her. That very it metaphorically is where a lot of her power is coming, um, and he makes it very literal. Like that's you know the fire coming out of her is literally the sun inside of her. And I think yeah. that that's an interesting touch. Notable introductions in this chapter. We um, we hear we hear the name Marwin for the first time. I think he's going to be important in future stories. Um, we meet the Lazarine for the very first time. Of course, we meet uh, Miri Mazdur, who's described as heavy and flat-nosed. She calls herself a god's wife. We meet the word Jaka for the first time. In Dothraki, Jaka is executioner. Although Danny describes them as mercy men. You know, these are men who've been wounded on the battlefield. And so these basically these executioners just come take their heads and end their misery. Um, so from one perspective, they're mercy men, and from other another perspective, they're executioners. Notable departures, although we don't see it happen on screen, Ogo and his son Fogo are mm. depart the narrative uh, as short lived as it was. Um, oh, I also wanted to point out one more show difference. In the show, they actually have Drogo like fight one of his blood riders, and that's how he gets mm-hmm. wounded, right? Yeah. Um, they get into a little argument, and you know, Drogo, you know, kills him. But then Drogo takes a little wound, and that's when Miriam Azdor steps in. In the book, that doesn't happen, and it's basically, look, I I killed I killed this cow, and but he you know he cut me before he died. And so he's already wounded when Danny comes upon him. And so to your point, it in the show it becomes even more Danny's fault because the fight is 
is over her, right? right? Yeah, that's <laughs> right. Yeah, she's the problem. It, it's so interesting that the particular choices that they make. Yeah. Um, Frustrating. Sometimes. I think it's a little bit. Yeah, I do think that they dulled down what we actually see of the battle mm-hmm. in in the show. I think that the this book is more brutal as as the executioning and the young boy who tries to run away and gets shot in the tortured, back, yeah. tortured and then shot in the back, and then um, the depictions of rape. That is absolutely toned down in the show. So I think it kind of cuts both ways. I think there are absolutely instances where the showrunners insert a rape where there was no rape before, right? Right. And, of course, they definitely deserve to be interrogated for that, right? Yeah. Um, In this case, they seem to have dulled the grotesque realities of war, I guess, um, for whatever reason. Right. Yeah. And and I and not to say that that's the wrong choice. That's not what I'm saying. But uh, when you read it in the text and there's all of these things ha- ramping up around her that she's watching and, and it's not just the rape, but it's just the overall cruelty, the torture. You can kind of see where why she snaps in mm-hmm. the way she does. Yeah, sure. And makes this this decision that is going to kind of start the ripple effects from there on it's it is less out of uh um i mean it's just it's it's the dread is building in a different way in the text right i think you're right absolutely okay well danielle i thank you so much such a complex and interesting chapter i i really appreciate your insights yeah thank you for having me For this week's Bird's Eye View, I'd like to revisit a somewhat controversial topic, and that is the casting of Targaryens of Color in the new HBO adaptation, House of the Dragon. I was reading through Danny's ninth POV chapter, and I encountered an interesting image. Danny is imagining in her dream what her grown son might look like. So this is the son that she might have had with Drogo, and this is what it says. She could feel the heat inside her, a terrible burning in her womb. Her son was tall and proud, with Drogo's copper skin and her own silver-gold hair, violet eyes shaped like almonds. Now, of course, this is a what might have been in Danny's dream, and of course we see Martin's Orientalism come in. This Mongol-like people look like they have copper skin and almond eyes. This is a very Western perspective on this nomadic people. And again, this is in a dream. I want to call that out. But I also want to call out that it is absolutely within the realm of Martin's imagination that a character with dark skin wed to a Targaryen might sire a child with that typically silver Targaryen hair. As Martin puts it here in book one, Drogo's copper skin and her own silver gold hair. I would argue that it absolutely does no damage to the world-building efforts of this first book to cast someone with dark skin as a Targaryen in this upcoming series. Book at baldmove.com if you have any thoughts along these lines. And that is all for this week.